Welcome to another episode of the Be Well Cartel podcast. Join us as we break down the truth behind all things fitness, nutrition, mindset, and more to help you form your own holistic definition of what is truly healthy for your body with a healthy dose of sarcasm, dad jokes, and real life experiences. If you're already a Be Well Cartel fan, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with your community. Thanks so much for being here, and we really hope you enjoy our newest episode of the Be Well Cartel. You guys, I was so excited to see your faces this morning. Seriously, I don't know why, but it feels like it's been a really long time. I also just have no idea what day it is when we record anymore. Cause we've, yeah, we've moved it around the last few weeks. And then today I was like, is it truly Friday before we get on? And Jillian goes, <laughs> it's Friday. And then we're all like, it's not Friday, Jillian. But this time it is. It's Friday. Yeah. Exactly. But and I, I think- I'm, I'm always so impressed at how we make it work with me being in Asia, Jillian in Spain, and Holly in the UK. Like, it's pretty impressive how we it, make it work every week. It totally is. And honestly, you guys, like, this week has been such a weird week because, so, I mean, weird and awesome because I was in Menorca, which is an island off of the coast of Spain um, from. Friday until Tuesday, which was honestly amazing. You guys, I was so impressed. I managed to pretty much completely disconnect from like emails. I even let my clients know that like I was going to be responding to things more slowly. I was on my phone very, very little, which was a huge, huge win for me. But then I got back and on Wednesday night, it was this holiday in Spain, which is like the worst holiday imaginable, especially if you have a dog, because this holiday essentially consists of just like throwing fireworks and like setting them off everywhere. And so it's like from Wednesday afternoon until like yesterday afternoon, it was just like fireworks. And so poor Ona was like, she doesn't get that freaked out about fireworks. Luckily, like she's not one of the ones that like barks and and like freaks out, but she was pretty scared. Like, and so we barely slept all night like Wednesday night and so this week has just been I'm like I don't I don't know what day it is. Juno's not a fan of fireworks. We have so in the UK we have Guy Fawkes night. We have that in New Zealand as well. <laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> I know so it is because it's isn't it like a you no it's an American thing isn't it? No no, no it's, British. British. it's British. British. It's when you try to blow up the house to do with the parliament, parliament. in London. Right. Yeah yeah yeah. Wait why yeah. do they and- celebrate that? Yeah, tough, tough to know because it's basically, well, it's meant to be, the celebration is meant to be of the fact that they like caught him and stopped him from blowing up the parliament and he is dead. But it definitely became way more a celebration of like, look at him go. Like he almost did it. Like good job, almost succeeding <laughs> Guy Fawkes. You, you made it happen. Because, but it, like looking back now, it's quite weird because we do fireworks, but we also like burn an effigy of Guy Fawkes on a big fire which is quite, yes, quite we dark. Did it too. Very pagan. It's quite dark. Yes. Um, but as children, we're like, yeah, burn him. <laughs> uh, but yeah, <laughs> Juno's not a not a big fan of the fireworks. She was quite angry at, at people setting off fireworks. And anytime someone sets them off just like randomly, she's like, oh, oh. yeah. Living in a tiny, like a tiniest city apartment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every, every Guy Fawkes, it's not a holiday in New Zealand, but it's a day and people always like buy fireworks and stuff like that. But it, it, every year it gets more and more contentious where there's more people saying this is not right. This is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. And the animals like the animals are affected and stuff like that. And so there's actually I think there's a lot more 
like regulations around actually selling fireworks and like getting yeah. them and stuff like there that are, now. There there are especially because of animals as well. They're meant to be here. And also in China, they had to regulate the sale of fireworks. I don't know if it's as big in Taiwan as it is in the mainland, but especially in Beijing around Chinese New Year, it used to just be oh, like my unlimited <laughs> fireworks for like a, a whole week. Oh, God. yes. Uh, it oh, was like, oh, seriously. So and they go, they just go like all day. 24 hours. I'm like, how, you can't slice. even see them during the day. Like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> and when I lived in Dalian, I mean, there's, there were no limits when I lived in Dalian. That was like 2009 or something or 2008. Um, and like, I remember going out into the streets the next day and, you know, like the firecrackers, they come in like little red mm-hmm. paper and you're just walking through like oceans of red paper on the street. It was so, yeah. such a surreal feeling. But, oh my God, do they love fireworks in China well, here, and they're, and they're like, not even fancy fireworks they're kind of like like pretty basic I'm off on the street fireworks. cycling like, is pretty yeah, dangerous yeah, during that yeah. I, I well it's funny because here it's it's almost like fire code just like doesn't exist and, and and it's so it's so funny when you live in like different cultures and you understand like what is acceptable like within different cultures and and I think that for example looking at like the way and this is just one that comes up all the time because I don't really drink anymore. And I used to be like a heavy binge drinker is like looking at the way, for example, like alcohol in the United States and alcohol here, like here, it's like, if you're like falling down drunk, people are like, like what's wrong with you? And in the States, it's almost like celebrated. It's like, look how drunk I got last Same night. in the UK, like yeah. UK drinking culture is, is bizarre. Oh my gosh. And New Zealand as well. It is binge, binge drinking is terrible. And I'll tell you what, like in South Korea, it is hectic. And I'm not even saying that like the, but there's a lot of um, culture that's wrapped up in that because so much business is done with drinking and it's very much about like in Japan. It's such a hierarchical system. China exactly. Too. And it's yeah. like, yeah, if you don't stay out, if you don't stay out and if you don't drink, then you're not a good employee or you're not great or you're not going to get the deal or whatever. It is not uncommon to like walk out on a Tuesday morning and see quite a few men in suits just on the side of the road, completely comish, like completely normal. And also because soju, which is like the rice wine, oh my God. Like yeah. national kind of drink <laughs> is so Oh man, soju just the problem like with soju makes you lose your mind. So and it's so easy to drink, but it's yes. so especially alcoholic. when you supercharge it with beard. Beard. We used to <laughs> beard. We used to we yeah. used to play a game. I, I don't think it's really a game, but it, when I first moved to Beijing, this is when I was just out of university, and we lived on the northeast southwest side of Beijing, and um, but like the main area for partying was like on the east side of Beijing, and we used to play a. I'll put this in quotes, game called Soju Taxi. Wait, because you know the soju comes in like little green bottles, like kind of yeah. this big. Yeah. Um, uh, the game was everyone got into the taxi with a bottle of soju and you had to finish the bottle of oh, soju no. before no, you no, got no. to the club. Isn't so it yeah, ridiculous? No, no, like no. the stuff, yes. the stuff that we did as and it's a dollar. That, what, it's like a dollar. in our, in our <laughs> early teens and 20s. But the, the thing is, is like here, for example, alcohol is so much cheaper than in the United States. Like so much cheaper, but in the United States, it's like, I remember, you know, you go out at like seven or 8 PM and then by like 1 AM, I mean, I remember in college, my friend and I made t-shirts 
we made t-shirts. I want you to like, think about how much thought is in there that said, ask me if I'm blacked out because we wanted to know (laughs) if we were aware of the fact that we were blacked out when, when this was happening. So we tie dyed t-shirts. This wasn't just like buying a white t-shirt and did it. We tie dyed t-shirts and then with Sharpie, had like put these on. And when we were, when we were like, okay, we're getting wasted tonight, we would be like, we got to put our shirts on. And it was just like one of these things that you think back on and you're like, how did we not die? Right. But also a good, uh, like, I think one of the cool things for all of us that we all came from really heavy drinking backgrounds and then all now barely drink at all. And Mm. I think like that can be really helpful for people because I think something a lot of people struggle with when they do start to go more focused on their health is if their social circles are very alcohol focused um and I think you know especially in the expat circles in Asia yes yeah it's it's very focused on drinking and so going through that experience of switching away from that whilst I was still in Asia and being like oh wait like I can still completely socialize without it it can be helpful for people to to work through that. I completely agree. And I actually have a client who um, was living. So when we started working together, was living in Shanghai and then moved to Hong Kong um, and then moved to the Hong States Kong's and is now living worse. in England. Yeah. And, and, and he actually had been a, a very, very heavy drinker for the majority of his adult life and now is not a drinker at all. But we, you know, we were working together when he was in Hong Kong and it was really hard for him. And one of the things that was really helpful is starting to understand like, who are the people that you truly connect with and who are the people that are just sort of like the, the like fringe friends, like the friends that are around when you're drinking, but aren't necessarily the people that you connect with. And, and, I also just had this conversation with another client who's an expat living in Austria, I want to say. And, and the same thing came up where it's like, how can you become more interested in the people that you're with rather than sort of the, the, like the, the alcohol that comes along with the situation. I, I, I feel like I didn't explain that that well, but like with, with both of these clients, it was like, how can you start investing in your relationships rather than the, rather than the drinking? Because I think a lot of the time it's like, we're going out to go drinking and it's like, well, really we're going out to like have fun with our friends. Right. But it's like the way that we do that is through drinking. And so how can we start looking at building stronger, deeper relationships that bring that fulfillment that you somehow like artificially feel when you're drinking, because you know that when you wake up in the morning after drinking, you either don't remember what happened or you don't feel that great about yourself whether it's like physically or emotionally and and so if you're investing more in these relationships around you and finding the people that truly bring you joy like you're going to be able to reduce drinking without the feeling of like I'm not connecting with people and also increase enjoyment in your social situations yeah and I think with that when you start to kind of think I don't know if I really want to be doing this anymore I don't really I don't really want this to be the vessel for which I actually connect with people more. I think that there can also be like some kind of grief and like loss that comes with that because sometimes you realize, man, I actually don't have a lot of common, have a lot in common with these people, but our connection is just from drinking and like what comes out of that. And so I think that that can be quite a process for people as well to kind of, and there can be some loneliness that comes with that too. It's like, wow, okay. 
So now I kind of have to rethink how I want to be spending my time. And there can be a lot of effort with seeking out people, like you said, Gillian, who do have those interests um, that you have or something like that. And so I think that there sometimes can be like a letting go process when you decide to do something different. Um, but that those connections that you do have with people can be the thing that keeps you that keeps you in there sometimes. So it's it's a really brave thing, I think. Yeah, I think it's a really brave thing, like to do something different. Like it's just like anything though. It's like um like we've talked about with like gaining weight and stuff like that. Like deciding not to drink when your whole circle drinks, that's tough. There's also, at least for me, a a huge part of it was just self-confidence. And like I've always struggled with with that. It's always been something that's been a big thing for me. And I, I feel like when I discovered alcohol for me, I was like, oh, look, like magical confidence that's come from nowhere. Whereas like what's actually happening is you never learn to be confident in yourself because you just rely on like a, some social lubricant, right, to to fill the gap. And so sometimes it's also besides just like the loss of potential friendships and things, it's also like, wow, now I have to actually confront the fact that without alcohol, I have so little self-confidence um but yeah uh there was one thing we wanted to do before we get into our q a episode for today and it was to read out a really lovely message that we got um on the be well cartel instagram account that it filled our hearts it filled our hearts with joy it gave me chills like literally like the hair on my arm stood up so I'm going to I'm going to share this with you guys. Um, and this is from we're going to say Ms. W. She said, loved this one. So she's talking about the episode that was released this week, which is what which was on unintentional weight. Ga- sorry, intentional weight gain. And she said, loved this one. I'm going through it right now. And I find so much comfort and wisdom in your conversations, ladies. You guys are like the wiser, better, more politically correct and inclusive female version of Mind Pump with your little life chit chats and fitness topics. I'm so here for it. Keep up the good work. So thank you so much for writing. Um, That just means so much to us. And it's the exact vibe that we're trying to give. So thank you so much for listening and giving us your ears. Yeah, if you guys have lovely messages that you would like to send us, please keep them coming. Our egos need it. <laughs> and well, honestly, I think it's one of those things that, and I was mentioning you guys to this this to you guys before we started, is that is I'm starting to hear more that like, hey, I've listened to your podcast or like, hey, I really like this episode. And if you're listening right now, let, like just know that we read every single message, we read every single review, and it is so incredible to understand the impact that we can have because this is truly something and you guys can hear it when we record these episodes is like we are really fucking passionate about this stuff and and it's so important for us to help guide individuals to to feel more confident in the decisions that they're making and feel like accompanied along the path um so yeah definitely never hesitate if you're like I don't think they're gonna want to hear from me oh yes we want to hear from you don't even don't even second guess that. And today we have um, speaking of hearing from people, we have questions that have come up 
quite commonly in our communities. And, and one is specifically something that we have mentioned a lot, like sort of alluded to in previous episodes. Um, and then, so we're gonna talk today um, about the question, like what is periodized nutrition? Um, and then we're also gonna go into a little bit about like how should we be using fitness trackers? Um, so let's kick it off with periodized nutrition. Who wants to get started? Holly, can, go for it. Yeah, yeah, I'll start off there. And I'll just start off with like a, a brief definition of what it is, right? And so the definition is really in the name, which is periodized. And periodized basically means we have chunks of time where we're focusing on different goals. And I think that's the best way to think about it um, because as we'll talk about later, the, the common way of periodizing nutrition is not the only way. It's basically just having different goals for your nutrition at different times. The way that we usually hear this spoken about is these three different periods, which is a cutting period. So that'd be like a weight loss focused period, a maintenance period, which is kind of like trying to maintain whatever you're doing, maintain results. The I find the naming of that to be somewhat problematic, but we can talk about that later. And then bulking, which is, you know, sort of like a muscle gain focused period. And those tend to be what we hear talked about. So cutting, maintenance, and bulking. I think that kind of gives you a good idea of it's not doing the same thing all the time. It's splitting up your nutrition goals into different targets at different times. This is is something that often is misunderstood or the concept of it is sort of not ignored, but it's just not as commonly talked about in the nutrition world because the diet industry has basically sold us this idea that like, we need to be constantly in a deficit. Like we need to be constantly trying to lose weight. And if we're not constantly trying to lose weight, like our willpower isn't good enough. Our self-control isn't good enough. Like we're doing something wrong. And, and honestly is like, if you have been chronically dieting or even just, I mean, I think that sometimes if you're not really understand, like, if you don't really understand how much food you're eating or what the impact of, of the food that you're eating has on your body, you may not necessarily always be in a caloric deficit if you're not aware. But I think that the, the stress that comes from chronically trying to reduce the size of our bodies or lose body fat or be more quote unquote fit, there's a really big toll that, that it takes on the body and the mind. And so periodized nutrition is essentially like the most efficient, um, both metabolically and also I think if you're ready for it with your relationship with food and relationship with your body, um, kind of the most efficient way to, to see the results that you may be looking for without putting your body under like this horrible chronic stress. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's like, if you want to, most people, when they come to a coach say that their goal is some version of reduced body fat and increased muscle, like periodized nutrition would be the best way to do that. And it's quite long-term which muscle gain is, especially for women. So what I really like about it is the fact that it teaches you that not only are there other goals than weight loss all the time, but that it should be structured that way. Um, so it's very encouraged to do, for example, starting off with a maintenance period, which I think is really important. And maintenance basically being that you're eating the same amount of calories as you're expending. So you're trying to keep things pretty much the same, but you might play around with more protein or more carbs or feeling for performance during that time. And so basically in maintenance, your goal is there's no body chain composition goal changes during that time. They might happen anyway as a side effect, but no specific goals around that. 
Um, and then you would go into potentially either a cut or a bulk phase. A lot of people would go into a cutting phase from there where your focus is on weight loss, having a caloric deficit, um, but hopefully, and usually it's progressive. So starting off as high as you can with calories and gradually reducing them over time. After your cut phase, you would usually go back into a maintenance phase. So you'd work back up to find a, you know, a new maintenance and then hang out there. So again, trying to keep the majority of the results from a weight loss phase, um, but no big body composition goal changes. And then after that, you might stay at maintenance forever. You might do another cut or you might go into a bulking phase, which is like uh, your goal basically is mu as much muscle gain as possible over that period. And then again, you'd come back to maintenance. So it's maintenance is kind of your foundation that you should be coming back to all the time. And you might go, you know, up and down either side of that with a, with a cut or a bulk. The thing that I love the most about what you said, Holly, was like, you know, this kind of approach and thinking about nutrition is, you know, periodizing like this means that it's kind of like long-term. And this is the thing, right? Is that when you're, when you kind of are interested in feeling well, like, um, you know, you're interested in nutrition for your life, then you are in it for life. And with that comes different phases and stages, right? And it's just like seasons in sport that we have off-season, in-season, pre-season like this. And we also do that with our nutrition. I think that instead of seeing it as like these block things, it's like, okay, cool. Like I'm doing these things that contribute to the bigger picture of, you know, what I'm doing with my life, you know? Um, but there's something that when we think about um, nutrition like this as well, I think it's, I think it's really important to distinguish the difference between like dietary restraint and like calorie restriction, right? Because so many people come to us in this like really frustrated place because they're like, I have been doing all of the things. Like I've done all of the diets. I've been, I, I have been eating like less food than I should be. Like I've been in a deficit and stuff like this. It's like, but have you really? Because there's a very big difference between restraining what you're actually eating and being in a calorie deficit because restraining what you're eating. So dieting and having like dieting frameworks and not letting yourself eat foods and things like that restriction. So like actually Jillian talked about this on her stories the other day, I think is that, you know, not having breakfast and then trying not to eat too much for lunch and then way overeating in the, at nighttime because you've been in this place of restriction all day. And all of that is the intention to be in a calorie deficit, but you're actually not in a calorie deficit at all. So I think that when we think about um, periodized nutrition as well, it helps us to understand these different phases that we can be in, that if we are in a calorie deficit, then we can be in a deficit. But dietary restraint is a very different thing. And it doesn't always mean that you're going to be in a deficit, which is what we want to lose body fat. Exactly. And I, I think that a really important point to make here is the fact that it's like, oh my God, that the point just like flew out of my head. What the, <laughs> oh, this, sorry, this is what it was, is that when we are, are looking to, to lose body fat is we usually have, we're usually in a hurry. We're usually like, oh my God. And this is actually something I just got a message from someone off of my website the other day that was like, Hey, you know, I have four weeks to lose, um, to lose three kilos and I want to do this and I'm going to do it this way. And so, you know, through the questions that I asked her, 
it was like, you know, what is, what's the hurry? And there was like a deadline there. Right. And here, and, and the thing is, is that it's like, it puts us as coaches in like between a rock and a hard place, because it's like, I understand that you have this goal, you have this deadline, but how do we, like, how can we express like, unfortunately you should have thought of this months ago, which is like, that as, as the consumer, as like the end, you know, the person that's like, but I have this pain point, like I want to lose this, this weight, or I want to change my body in this time frame. It's like that, it, that's not what you want to hear. It, what you want to hear is not like, Hey, you should have thought about this four months ago or whatever it was. And so that's where I think that it becomes really hard to understand periodized nutrition because we're constantly, and we've been programmed this way. We're constantly in a rush to see what we want. Yes. And it's especially tough when you're feeling uncomfortable in your body and you go to talk to someone to help you ideally feel more comfortable in your body, which to you at that point means being smaller. Um, And that person says, okay, cool. Like we can do this, but not for uh, the first sort of two to three months of us working together. That's really tough. Um, And it's something that I, I purposely try to talk about a lot in content that I put out but so that most people when they come to me have an idea and and most people come to me still hoping that I'll go oh you're fine actually we'll just go straight into a into a cut phase but they come kind of knowing that that might not be the case I think that helps make things a little bit easier and also knowing that like when I go through a maintenance phase with people at the beginning of their time with me they're like I'm like you're allowed to complain about it you're allowed to cry on our calls. You're allowed to do whatever you want. You're allowed to curse me through it. Like as long as I'm helping to keep you on track with that until you get to a point where your metabolism is in a healthy place um, and your relationship with food is in a better place and hopefully your relationship with your body is in a slightly better place. Like by the end of that maintenance period, you'll be like, oh, okay, I made it. It wasn't as bad as I thought. I had some negative stuff going through it. But now you're set up in such a better place if you then do want to go into body change. I've actually had um, a couple of my nutrition clients just in the last couple of weeks have been like, you know what? I actually want to stay here. And they came with the goal of wanting to go into a deficit, you know, wanting to change their body. And it was like, you know, we had to go through this process of like, hey, we need to actually bring up your food. We need to establish a better relationship with yourself and food and stuff like that. And um, two of them just the last couple of weeks have been like, you know what? I actually want to stay here. I'm really enjoying um, this time of like eating lots of food. I'm really enjoying my time in the gym. I'm like making great gains. Like I just feel good in all of these areas. So this, this place of like maintenance is such a, we, we just don't give it enough airtime and it's truly such an awesome place to be. But I think as well, you know, just going back to that of when we we do get those inquiries from people who are feeling really urgent and really stressed about wanting to make change straight away, it's so important to validate that, right? Like just because that is a really painful place to be. But I think that for you guys listening, something to take away from that is that if you do have a coach that is straight away like, sure, let's go on a deficit and they're not actually looking at what you're taking in at the moment. They're not looking at your history of nutrition. They're not like doing a, you know, at least a seven day recall of your food and stuff like that. And they're putting you straight into that and promising, making promises to you that you're going to get to your goal in four weeks. 
then that's just something for you to be like, is this really is this really going to be helpful for me? Um, and I think that that's just like a red flag if you are looking to work with someone with nutrition. It's important to, to remember that like your coach should have your health kind of as first priority and they should be able to, to talk to you about like, about why. So that you not only, like you don't need to just trust them blindly, but they're able to actually like involve you in the process so that you understand what's going on. I'm actually, by the time this episode comes out, I will have posted a post about like how to choose a coach, like how to know if a coach is right for you and like how to, how to choose a coach. So look for that on Instagram. But I think that one of the things that we want to talk about also is like understanding the time frame here, like understanding like how long should we be in each different phase? Because as we talked about before, there's often like a sense of urgency around body changes, but like understanding that like there is a period of time at which we want to be in it, ideally be in each phase in order to like accurately um, preserve that health or improve that health. And so this is going to be a range for different people. Like there is a range anywhere from like, but I think it's, and I think you guys would probably agree that anything over about 12 weeks for a cut or a bulk, it, it may be a, a bit too much. Um, and then maintenance is one of those things that like, there isn't really a time for like, if you want to stay at maintenance forever, awesome, stay at maintenance forever. That's great. But I think that a lot of the time there's this, this idea of like, well, I want to cut for, you know, two weeks. Cause I want to get ready for a vacation or, you know, and that's like, oh, okay. Like you, you can see some change in that period of time. Um, but I think often the change that we're looking to see is not like, oh, I'm going to cut for a shorter period of time. I'm just going to slash my calories even lower because that means that I'm going to lose fat faster. Like that's not really how it works. And that's also ideally, I don't want to get too much into this, but when we're doing that, we're not losing body fat. We're losing a lot of other, like you could, if you're, if you're seeing a weight drop fast from like highly slashed calories, you're probably going to be losing a good amount of muscle along with it, which is not ideal. Yeah. And it's, it's the whole process is really individual, but let's say you're listening to this podcast and you're like, okay, periodized nutrition sounds really interesting to me. Like, how can I get started with this? The first thing you'd want to look at is like, what, what is your history with dieting been up until this point? Because that's going to control a lot of how long that first maintenance phase needs to be and the more time you've been spending in a calorie deficit over the last like year or so the the more time you're going to want to spend just embracing that maintenance phase at the beginning and if you're still struggling with like a yo-yo dieting mindset working with a coach for that is probably gonna be really really helpful and the coach will be able to guide you on how long that process should be it's probably going to be somewhere in the range of three to six months probably which is longer than most people want to hear so if you're hearing that you're like oh god like that's a really good sign that working with a coach might be extremely helpful for you with that for a cut phase i i i choose the length of my cut phase based on basically the personality of the person i'm working with so i have certain clients where i know they will do significantly better if the cut is six weeks and a, a bigger calorie deficit and we don't change the calories through it and other people will do much better if it's 12 weeks gradual descent the people who are a bit more of that curiosity mindset a bit better at being patient that kind of sort of eight to 12 week slow descent in calories according to progress on whatever progress markers we're looking at that would be my preference for like maintaining maximum muscle mass and all that kind of thing but it really depends on the person and for for certain people who might be very 
beginner with this and haven't been in a calorie deficit at all and uh, have quite a lot of weight that they could lose, they might be okay with a longer calorie deficit that might be fine for them. Um, and then, yeah, working back out into that maintenance. Maintenance should be, if you're thinking of doing another cutting phase after that, minimum of of eight weeks, absolute minimum. And that should be working up to and then eight weeks at your new maintenance before you could try to go down again. But I would recommend 12 weeks plus. Basically, if you're looking at your your year as one like period, then you're you should be spending way more of that year out of a deficit than in it. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I love everything that you just said. And and this is why as well that nutrition is so individual. Um is that even within those phases, like even within a a deficit phase, like even if it is a more aggressive cut or if it is a longer cut, then even within that it's like your life comes into that as well. So it's like as coaches we have so many tools to help work through that. So you know, having diet breaks and like working that cut in with your life. And if you've got, you know, if you're going away on holiday or something like that, like it's, it's never as linear as like six weeks, 12 weeks, eight weeks, blah, 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 like this. It's like, okay, there's so much stuff that's going in between there um, and so many tools to make that process. Okay. And the thing is as well, is that like Holly said, the longer that you spend, we want to spend most of our time in maintenance. And the longer that you, the more that you do that, if you do decide to go into a fat loss phase, then that is so so much of a less painful process. Because when you are taking calories from the highest amount of calories that you can be eating while maintaining your weight, you're in such a better place. And so, you know, there's so much there to lean into making a process of going into a calorie deficit not so hideous because it doesn't have to be. But I think that so many people are coming to this from a place of like dieting for years and years and years. It's just like, this is such a hard, horrible, horrible thing to do. And it's like, it doesn't actually need to be. I mean, it's a little bit uncomfortable, you know, it's a little bit uncomfortable, but it doesn't need to be totally terrible. I think there's a few different methods that we want to touch on for like how to periodize nutrition, because I think that it's often like sold as like, there is one way to do this and one way alone. And there's never just one way to do things. But one, one point I do want to make is like, and, and Olivia touched on this and, and Holly as well, but I want to make it very like explicit is that the goal here, especially if you're working with one of us, the goal is for you to, if, if you are looking to change your body and, and usually that is in a fat loss phase, if you are looking to, to lose fat, the goal is for you to do that, eating the most amount of food possible. Like the goal is not to just slash your calories and have have you eat as little as possible? Um, because that is not only like, yeah, you may lose, you may lose fat. You may end up, you know, hit quote unquote, hitting your goal, but there's long-term implications to, to what that looks like with your body. And this is where, um, it's really important for all of us. It's like health first, right. Um, which is why Holly touched on that really long maintenance phase as being really important. And if you are coming from chronic dieting, having some maintenance and the tools to, to kind of periodize that nutrition there, as I mentioned, there's a few different ways. So you can count macros. Um, that is a very commonly used way. Um, there are like templates that you can use that are essentially meal plans. Um, that's not really the way that, that we tend to go because it tends to be quite rigid. And then you can like the way that I work a lot with a lot of my clients is using 
a lot of the, the, the principles of mindful eating and using hand portions. So most of my clients are not weighing and measuring their food. And you can also do it that way. I think there is this idea of like, you have to be extremely like precise. I need to weigh and measure everything. And like, that is one way to do it, but it is not the only way to do it. And this is why it can be really helpful if you are looking to understand this better or are looking to dig into this to, to speak to a professional that can help you understand what method may be the best method for you because what works for you know your friend Susie may not be the method that works for you and your lifestyle and, and the way that your brain works. I'll just say one last thing before we go into our next um, question to talk on is that I think, you know, when we when we think about and talking about these like transition periods from like going being in a deficit and maintenance and surplus, whatever, is one of the one of the trickiest things is actually going from a deficit, like once you've finished a cut and then going back to maintenance. And that's where I think, you know, working with someone is super, super helpful because what can often happen is it's like, okay, done. Now I'm just gonna eat, you know, how I normally would eat before that's what we see at the end of that. most diets right and that's why they don't work exactly and so you know there is there certainly is a there's like method to it all um and just having someone also to see the things that you can't see is really helpful and maybe like to push pull you back a little bit more if you want to keep dieting and things like that and I know that um I recently had a client and I was like, mm, we're going on a diet break this week because there were things that she was saying that I was like, no, we just need to pull back. And she was like, holy smokes, I didn't even realize that I needed to do that. I was like really struggling. And so that's where, I mean, this is where we find sustainability <laughs> within nutrition. And this is where we develop a good relationship with like um, nutrition and our bodies and stuff like that, right? When we can just sort of understand things a little bit more. That can lead us really well into our next question, which is one that Olivia, I know you've gotten a lot from your community recently. And I think it makes a lot of sense because you do focus on, on performance. Um, and that is how should I be using my fitness tracker? And I think this come, this is, this is one that whether or not you use a fitness tracker, I think the way that we're going to answer this question can be really helpful for you to understand like the role of what a fitness tracker is, whether that is, you know, I'm just going to name off a few of the most common ones, like a Fitbit or an Apple watch or an aura ring or a whoop or, um, a my zone, uh, there's, or a Garmin, like there are so many different types of fitness trackers that give different information. Um, and there's, there's a multitude of different ways that they can either be helpful or hurtful. Like any, any tool used incorrectly can cause issues. Right. And so I think that this is why we wanted to touch on this and help you maybe understand if you do use a fitness tracker, what's a, a way that you might be able to use it in a, in a more efficient way for you. And if you're not using a fitness tracker, like that's okay. And how you can still look at metrics in a useful way rather than a hurtful way. Yeah. I'll start off with talking about how we shouldn't use fitness trackers, because I think that this will clear things up for a lot of people. And I think it's the way that a lot of people who start off using a fitness tracker will use it. And, and the way that I still see a lot of very experienced people using their fitness trackers. So ways that we shouldn't use it. So first of all, if we're using fitness trackers to track our exercise during workouts, we shouldn't be using them to tell us how many calories we burned during that workout. Uh, it's so, so inaccurate. They've done studies on this. And depending on the device, it's usually somewhere between 
20 to 95% inaccurate. Like Which that's is a pretty like, big range. Insane. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people uh, then use that sort of calorie burn number that they believe to be accurate to then help them decide how much they are quote unquote allowed to eat that day or they use it to earn food or earn a night out or earn whatever a it's inaccurate so we don't want to be using it that way anyway b that's not the reason we want to be working out we should be, there should be a lot of other reasons if the only reason you're doing the work that you're doing is because it burns a certain amount of calories like okay let's find a new way for you to work out and then c we don't want that transactional relationship with food at all especially if we look at that concept of eating more because i trained Olivia did a really good post a little while ago on should you be eating less on rest days? And I really recommend you go read that because it's just not something that we want to be doing. And so using fitness trackers for exercise tracking is very problematic in that way. How, how would I use it in relation to exercise tracking? So personally, I still, I, I have an Apple watch. I still put my, my exercise tracker on sometimes when I'm doing my exercise, unless it's like handstands or something where it's going to make my wrist weird. Um, I use it to look at my heart rate um, and p- particularly in relation to hypothalamic amenorrhea recovery. I wait for my heart rate to go back down to like very close to my resting heart rate before I move on to the next exercise. And I've had other clients who, for example, if they work out very intensely, get lots of brain fog the next day or find it hard to recover. And literally just by using heart rate, Um, during their workouts to decide when they should do their next set have found things much more comfortable from that and so that's how I would use it in relation to exercise tracking versus what I think most people do really good point and this is something that you guys hear me and and we all talk about this so much and I repeat myself over and over is like it's the curiosity over judgment piece it's like how can I get curious over what this data means rather than how can I use it as a judgment tool to to dictate what I should or should not do and this is where I think that it may be for example if you are currently exercising in a way um, just because of the amount of calories it burns like maybe that's not the only reason you do the exercise but then how can we get curious about why that's so important to you and and use the the information that we get from the fitness tracker maybe not to say like oh this is the amount of calories I've burned but understand like oh okay so maybe this is what's happening with my heart rate um, I'm curious as to to why for example when I lift weights it says that I only burn this many calories but when I you know when I do high intensity interval training it says I burn this many calories and maybe that's a question that you want to pose to your coach or you want to explore more of and use it to learn a little bit more about how your body works and how that relates to exercise I think uh, as far as the inaccurate inaccuracies are concerned another one that we find a lot is um, is sleep where it can and we talked about this in our sleep episodes so I'm not going to go too far down this is like oh my gosh, this is the amount of sleep I'm getting. Like either this is good or this is bad. And I think that this is where we want to look at like, okay, maybe the absolute data is not correct, but it can show trends, which can help guide you. And I think that there's a big difference between guide and dictate, right? It's like, I'm going to use this information to help me make decisions, not this is the information that is going to dictate the decision that I make. I love that so much, that differentiation between guide and dictate. I think that's great. And I, I just, isn't it, so, isn't it so weird that the reason that we use these things is for data, but the data is so inaccurate. I just think it's so yeah. like weird, um, but it's so not black and white either. You know, I think that there are, 
some people that really demonize fitness trackers, like people that are very much in like the intuitive movement kind of space and stuff like that. But then there are people that are very, very data driven and it is just so individual. And like, I have used it for many different ways for like my performance, but then also like Holly during my HA recovery was very much about checking my heart rate, making sure that I actually hadn't done it like too many steps, you know, I will use it with different clients, like some clients that struggle to move enough. It can be something that can give them a nudge to actually do that. Um, And also for some people that move too much, you know, so it very much is a spectrum, but I think that um, fitness trackers can certainly be one of these things that there are always good intentions, but good intentions kind of turn into harmful things. It's like a healthy thing that turns unhealthy, right? And so I think that something, if we're thinking about a fitness tracker in relation to just exercise, because there are so many fitness trackers that, like my Apple, I mean, I look at my Apple watch to tell me the weather, <laughs> you know, it's like pretty much to tell me the weather and what the time is. But um, if we are thinking about it just in that sense of exercise, it's like, has that relationship changed? You know, like, has your relationship to exercise changed since you started using a fitness tracker. And if we are thinking about fitness, like what I said before about nutrition, right? Is it, it's long game, it's long-term. And if, we, if we're if we thinking about exercise and we want to have a healthy relationship with exercise, because that is really, really important to be a, I'm doing quotation marks because what is healthy, but a healthy person, right? Um, and have a healthy relationship with our body, then then that relationship is is flexible and it's varied and we have, we can do different things. We can be okay with not having these external things and we understand where our internal motivation comes from. But if we are really tied to fitness trackers to tell us that we must work out, we must work harder, we must get this amount of steps, we're inflexible with it, we don't like to take it off and it's that is dictating our exercise and maybe affecting relationships and, and things like that, like how we show up then that can be an unhealthy relationship. And so I think that it can be a very confronting thing to be asking these questions of yourself. And it can feel a little bit scary because it's almost like, but if I take this off, then will I become lazy? I won't know how many steps I've done. I'm going to gain weight. I'm not going to be able to push harder. And that's where it's like, we can use this data and this information, but we have to layer our own experience on it. Because sometimes, you know, you will be really tired and but your step your fitness tracker will tell you to go and do a workout or something and then you're just like digging yourself into more of a hole and so it is about stepping back and asking yourself like what is the meaning that I'm attaching to this and if you're like oh it makes me feel really uneasy to like not look at my watch or something it's like well maybe you can go a day without having your watch on and just pay attention Like, how do you actually feel? How do you feel if you only get, if you don't move as much? Or if you're looking at your watch, if you get 2000 steps, how does it make you feel? For me, I feel like tight and kind of like, oh, it doesn't make me feel good, right? And if you get like 20,000 steps, how do your hips feel? So it's about asking yourself these questions, like alongside that to help you understand yourself more. And this is actually, is this is an interesting topic for me. And I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before because I actually had to give up my fitness tracker. I actually, I used to wear Fitbit um, and I had originally bought the Fitbit when I was coaching CrossFit. And I was curious about like how much movement am I actually getting throughout the day? And then the more I got, into like seeing the data, the more it started to dictate how I felt. And I remember like waking up in the morning and like, I would be like, oh, you know, I like, I feel fine. And then I would look at my sleep and be like, well, my sleep said that I don't. And then I would be like, 
do I really feel fine? I don't know if I really feel fine because my sleep said that I did. And it's like, this is like, if we're letting the data on our fitness tracker, uh, make us doubt ourselves, like that's a problem. And then it also started to be like, well, if I didn't get enough steps, like I didn't deserve to eat. And um, I want to just really quickly touch on a really funny article by an, uh, an author named David Sedaris, who I don't know if you, you guys know David Sedaris. He, he does a lot of short stories um, and he's really, really funny. And he actually did a short story, I believe in the New Yorker a couple of years ago about fitness trackers and how it turned into an obsession for him, how he started out being like, oh, I'm going to get 5,000 steps a day. I'm going to get 10,000 steps a day. And then it turned into this like obsession where he continuously had to like overcome the amount of steps that he got the previous day. And I don't know if this is true, like a completely true story, but it, at the end of the, the art the short story, he was talking about how, you know, he, you know, had walked miles and miles down this French country road and realized that he, you know, that getting 50,000 steps in a day was just completely unrealistic. And so he had to break up with his fitness tracker. And I think it's like, yes, it's funny, but it's also like so many of us get stuck in this loop of like, I need to do more. I need to be better. I need to, I need to overdo, or I need to overcome what I did yesterday. I need to be better than yesterday. And it's like more is not always better. Um, so I don't want to go too far down that, but we will link that article if I can find it in the, in the episode notes, because it's actually really funny. And I, I identified with it when I read it. Cause it was when I had my Fitbit and I was like, Ooh, okay. Yeah. And a lot of this is also about your relationship, not just with data, but I feel like relationship with data often comes from our relationship with ourselves and that self-trust piece. Right. And if, if we're, in a place where we really don't trust ourselves, then it then we become reliant on the data to inform us whether or not we're doing something correctly. And so if you're finding that, like taking a break and working on the self-trust piece first, you might be able to bring it back in a healthy way. You might be fine, you know? And, and sometimes the data can be helpful if we've gone in the opposite direction where we're so far out of being connected with our body that, you know, I'll take my, use myself as an example, when I, when I had very poor sleep and I was doing that, as we discussed on the sleep episode, where I was like, oh, I only need six hours a night. I'm just going to do six hours a night. If you'd have asked me, I would have said, oh, I feel fine. And if I'd looked at the sleep tracker, I would have gone, oh, well, whatever, sleep tracker. Like you say, I'm not fine, but I feel fine. So whatever. Whereas then what, what I actually did was like decided to experiment and see what happened. The keyword there being experiment, right? The curiosity side of things. I decided to experiment and try increasing it and see what happened when I got a quote unquote good amount of sleep uh, for, according to my my tracker and the the difference in my body and how I felt was significant. And so it can, it can also be helpful depending where you're at on your journey. And other ways that I find data can be helpful, like bits of data that I find to be useful. A, if you're an endurance athlete, so if you're a runner or you're a triathlete, you might use the pacing um, mechanisms on your fitness tracker quite a lot. I don't know if all the Fitbits have them, maybe the advanced ones do, but I know like Garmin and Apple Watch both do pacing. Um, so my endurance people use that sometimes. And then personally, I use it a lot for recovery data. That's probably what I use it the most for. So I use it for HRV, heart rate, and body temperature tracking. And I, I think unless you have an Oura ring that you probably don't have body temperature tracking, but if you have an Oura, they do. And so I use it for those and I use it also to help me track my cycle. So I can see distinct changes in heart rate, body temperature and HRV as I go through my cycle and it helps inform a lot there. Yeah, I, I, I do actually wish that because I've got an Apple, I do actually wish that the Apple Watch had <laughs> those, those extra things. But I know a lot of people that won't get a whoop 
because it doesn't have the step count on it, you know? So it, it, it is interesting how we use it, but I think that, you know, something really important, what we're really trying to get at here is that if you're, you can use it fine, but if you're not paying attention to yourself, that is a problem. And if you are actually abandoning yourself and moving away from yourself in the process of like using these trackers, then that is a problem. Because if your tracker breaks down, if your watch stops working, if you drop it in the sea or something like that, and you don't have it, then what are you going to do? You know, it's like, now, like while you're using it, now is the time to actually understand how the pieces work together. And remembering that you're an individual, like your tracker, just like the scale, doesn't know you. It doesn't know your life. It doesn't actually know what is going on. It doesn't understand your like mental stress, emotional stress, like anything like that. Um, and what your lifestyle is like. And the other thing as well is that, and so, so my point with that is that, you know, if you are clinging to that as, as your source of motivation and as your source for information, then that's a pretty scary thing, you know, um, where you just don't really know yourself. And so it's an invitation to get to know yourself. But the other thing as well is just on steps is that I'm sure that people have probably heard this before, but like the 10,000 steps is not, not a real thing. It's a very arbitrary number. And that came from like the Japanese in the 1960s with like a pedometer thing when people were overweight and it's a thing. And so the 10,000 steps is, is, not really a thing, but it's more kind of like if you're getting around seven to 8,000 steps a day, I mean, that's kind of like now what they're saying is like, you know, movement for just general health is quite key. And so, but even that, it's like, how does that feel with you? You know? So yeah, I just thought I'd say that. Well, and, and I think you make a really good point, Olivia, is that it's like, we like to have these certain numbers that we believe are like, quote unquote, okay numbers. It's like, you know, oh, 2000 calories a day is like the number. And it's like, well, why? Like all of our bodies are so different. It's like 10,000 steps a day. Like that's like the number. Well, why? Well, that's just like an, a number that people like to round number. It sounds good. Cool. Let's aim for that. But I think that something that, that is really important to realize is like, you actually have a lot of data that you can access um, at your fingertips, even if you just have a phone. So you don't need to like go out and buy a fitness tracker. You can use some of the data on your phone. And, and also in that is like, if you realize that you're becoming obsessive with it, like you can also stop using that data, but it can be a way to not look at like, is this the absolute of like what I need to be doing? But for example, a way that I, they use steps a lot with my clients is just having them look at like the average, whether it's on a fitness tracker or whether it's on their phone, like yeah. having them look at kind of the average that they've gotten over the last week or so be like, cool. Like, okay. You've mentioned that you'd like to get more exercise. Well, why don't we start by adding like 500 more steps or a thousand more steps a day and get up to a point where you feel comfortable with it. And that can also be really helpful when we're looking at like, okay, what are the things that I can be doing that add to my health without being like, I'm going to go to the gym three to five times a week. It's like, sometimes that doesn't work. Like I work with a lot of moms that like going to the gym is like, they're like, yeah, I'd love to do that. But like, that's just not going to happen. And so it's like, okay, cool. How can we use these fitness trackers or, or even the data that you have on your phone? I think all phones have pedometers now, obviously you have to have your phone on you in order for it to work, but how can we use this data to just like nudge 
the needle a little bit. Um, I just want to really quickly touch on something. I think I told you guys about this. I worked with a client who had, who was very, very attached to their fitness tracker data and had like, you know, the, the scale that attaches to the Fitbit and then the Fitbit that has like the heart rate, you know, the heart rate bell and all that stuff. And it was like, and they came to me and they, and this client told me like, Hey, these are, this is the amount of calories I'm burning per day. Like as an, as a, like, this is what's happening. And this is the amount of calories I'm burning per day. This is the amount of calories that like, you know, whatever platform or my fitness pal or whatever told me I should be eating. I know based on what my quote unquote research says that I, I can cut a thousand calories a day and I should lose this amount per week. And I think this happens a lot is like, we believe like we're, we get interested in learning more about how to do these things, whether it's the periodized nutrition or whether it's, you know, fat loss or, or data tracking, or whatever it is. And we take these, this is absolutes. And what actually happened with this client is when we really dug into it, understanding that like, there's a very wide range of, of possible um, data that, that the fitness tracker can be giving you as far, as far as calories that can be either ranging closer to, to accurate to farther from accurate. Also, when we're looking at like the amount of calories that we quote unquote should be taking in, a lot of the technology that we may be using to calculate that is not taking into consideration, like Olivia was saying, your individuality as a person, which is why having asking someone to help you with this can be so important because as coaches, we take into consideration, not just like a number, but also who you are as a person. And then on top of that is like this client was also tracking their food intake inaccurately. And so this is like the, the culmination of something that I think we see a lot of like taking data that was not necessarily accurate from a fitness tracker, taking data that's not necessarily accurate as far as like, as, as far as uh, what we quote unquote should be doing, and then taking data that was inaccurate as far as what they were actually doing food wise. And that can cause a big amount of frustration because you're like, I'm, I'm using so many air quotes here, guys. I'm quote unquote doing everything right. And I'm not seeing the, the results that I should be seeing based on the data, which can make you feel like you're going insane. Totally. And I really want to go back to what you said, Jillian, like alongside all of this is, is the idea of trends, right? Is that nothing is ever happening in isolation, but we as humans, we, we just like, look at one thing so we'll look at one day of calories or like one meal or I messed up this one meal or um steps on one day and stuff like that but um I'm pretty sure that you guys would look at your clients the same way right is that we look at the week as a whole and how things kind of shake out at the end of the week and that's kind of like the main thing is that we don't need to get so in the minutiae of everything but it's like remembering what you're doing most of the time matters most, you know, and that really adds up. And if we're doing that like 70% of the time, then that's, you're doing pretty okay. Yeah. I think that this is where it's like, we want to be looking at a bigger picture of like what we're doing overall, because I think that there it's like, Oh, I got 20,000 steps yesterday. So I deserve to eat or whatever this amount today. And it's like, well, we don't want to look at these things in isolation. We want to look at overall trends. We want to look at like, how am I treating my body? How am I thinking about how I treat my body? I think we can kind of wrap up with all of this. It's funny because it's like, 
pretty much everything we talk about has common themes, right? It's the, it's this theme of like bio-individuality, like understanding like what works for me is not necessarily what's going to work for everybody else. And there's also a lot of questioning that happens that I think that in the the diet and fitness industry is like, we just want to know the answers. We just want to know, like, this is what I need to do. If I just do this, then everything's going to be, you know, everything's going to turn out how I want it to. But there's so much nuance to everything, which is like, in a way, I think it like hurts my heart because I want to sometimes just give people answers. I want to sometimes just be, be, be like, hey, this is what you need to do. If you do this, everything's going to be fine. And like, that's just not how life goes. So I think that that's like a big reason why we're here is to help you figure this stuff out and help you ask questions and help you be okay with asking questions and have the answer change or have the answer be, it depends. And just to kind of wrap up like the, the two questions. So we talked about periodized nutrition and we talked about fitness trackers today. And so Holly, do you want to do like a really quick recap of, of, um, of periodized nutrition and then Olivia do a really quick recap of the fitness trackers? Yeah. So periodized nutrition, basically we talked about the three main concepts there, which are maintenance phase where you're eating and expending pretty much the same amount of energy and you don't have a focus on body composition change, uh, weight cut phase uh, where you're focused more on weight loss and ideally maintaining the maximum amount of muscle mass you can during that and a bulking phase where you're trying to gain muscle. Um, and we talked about how basically you want to think of this as a long-term thing. It should be like a year plus if you're looking at how to periodize your nutrition and the majority of that time should be spent in a maintenance period. And there should be very little of it spent in a weight loss period. Love it. And then with the beautiful. fitness tracker. Yeah, nailed it. <laughs> Mate. And then with the fitness tracker, we talked about like, is it actually accurate? And is it reliable? And how are you using that data? If maybe it's not that accurate? Um, does it change the way that you view exercise and how you feel about exercise? And are you doing a lot when you're tired? Or are you doing you know, pacing up and down the hallway at nighttime, trying to get in your 10,000 steps when actually you probably should have gone to bed half an hour ago. Are you using the data from your fitness tracker to dictate what you eat if you have more carbohydrates or less carbohydrates or giving you permission to eat certain foods? Can you be objective with the data or are you taking that personally? And we really encourage you to maybe take a technology break. So if you're finding that that is a little bit triggering for you, that conversation around the meaning that you're attaching to your fitness tracker, the data and how you're actually using it, it might be worth having a day off and just seeing how that feels for you and allowing yourself the space to actually learn a bit more about yourself, your body and um, develop more self-trust. The self-trust piece is, is big. And I think that we talk about this a lot and, and about how, why a coach can be important. And this isn't to like sell our services or tell you that like, you need to, you need to work with one of us. But I think one of the cool things, and whether that is a coach, whether that is simply someone that helps you look uh, a little bit at the bigger picture, it can just be so, so, so helpful because, and this is why all of us are either in therapy or have done therapy before is because having someone outside of yourself help you kind of reflect back and hold up that mirror can be so helpful sometimes. And yeah, I think, I don't know, guys, I, I understand that like coaching is not necessarily accessible for everyone just because it is a higher price point. But if you do have the financial capability to do that, I would recommend just giving it a try. It might be really interesting for you to, to have that mirror held up 
and, and understand. And if not, then I hope that we as a podcast can be that mirror for you. Um, and just know, I think I alluded it to it on the last podcast. We are, are working on, on building something for you. If you are interested in having a little bit of support and a little bit of that mirror being held up, whether you are working with a coach, whether it's one of us or a different coach, or, or whether you're just looking for a little bit of, of like un, extra understanding that we have opened the door for and can continue to, to share with you. We are working on something that we will be sharing with you in the near future that is more financially accessible than working with a coach one-on-one, but will provide you some of that amazing value of having the mirror held up. Um, and being able to ask questions and being able to understand a little bit further. So, oh, and always, always dad jokes, always. So with that, I think we I think we were extremely efficient today, guys. That was amazing. And we can wrap up. Is, is, any last words? Yep. All right. See ya. <laughs> See ya. Bye. See you later. Um, all right, guys. Well, as always, it was been it has been a, a pure bundle of joy being with you this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Be Well Cartel podcast. Make sure to hit follow on the podcast app of your choice, share this episode, and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. It is a small effort with a big reward and the best way for other like-minded individuals to find the Be Well Cartel. To learn more about the Be Well Cartel community, stay up to date with us on Instagram at Be Well Cartel and see you again next week. We love feedback, so if you have anything to share with us, please reach out via Instagram to let us know what we are doing well, what we can improve on, and how we can support you.